Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, the mysterious 1903 Buffalo, New York murder of businessman Edward Burdick. He saw Ed's body on the couch, what he assumed was Ed's body. It was covered with pillows and stuff, and his head had been wrapped up in a blanket, but it was a very bloody crime scene. And so he could tell that the man on the sofa was dead, and he was only wearing an undershirt. Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of Most Notorious. Eric Riven is here. Thank you for listening. It is, as always, so appreciated. I am very grateful to have as my guest today Kimberly Tilly. This is her second time on Most Notorious. She came on the show last year to talk about her book, The Poisoned Glass. And now she's got a new one out called Cold Heart. The Great Unsolved Mystery of -of Turn-of-the-Century Buffalo. Great to have you here uh, once again. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Yes, yes. So you are good at finding true crime stories that are not generally (laughs) (laughs) well-known. When and where did you first hear about the Burdick murder? I first learned about it long time ago, maybe um, 10 years ago or more. And I was just looking for material for my website. I I have a website where I write these stories and things. And I wrote a multi-part series on it. But later when I was thinking about what do I want to write for my second book, this was the only thing I could really think of. And I, I thought it was such a fascinating story. So I decided to just go for it. So if you don't mind, uh, let's start with the verdicts, who they were and how they first met. Okay. When the story opens, Ed Burdick is about 40 years old. And he was, I think, a middle-class guy. He, he started at his company as a stenographer, and he worked his way up to become the president. And so he was the owner of this company, and he was also the owner of a separate publishing company that he founded. And he became very wealthy. 
And he married this woman named Alice Hull in 1885. And they had three daughters together. And they lived in this beautiful mansion in Buffalo on Ashland Avenue. And her parents lived with them. And um, her father ended up dying. So Ed Burdick's father-in-law ended up dying maybe three or four years before the story starts. And so it's really just the two of them, their three daughters, and Mrs. Hull, who is Alice's mother. And then there are also a couple of servants that live there. And the Burdicks were very popular. So Ed was a very well-liked guy, maybe like the most well-liked person in Buffalo that was very high profile. And he was president of his neighborhood golf club and this dancing organization that they had. He's a very dapper dresser and uh, just super nice, very generous Um, And I think down to earth because he had climbed the ladder himself. So he didn't have a lot of pretentiousness. So this idea of social class is is very important to the story, this uh, social circle that they traveled in. Would you talk about this circle and, and how they fit into it? Absolutely. So they had a very tight knit circle of friends, there were probably three other couples that they would spend a lot of time with. So there would be uh, Dr. and Mrs. Payne, um, the Warrens, and then the Pennells. And the Burdicks were wealthy. So they were basically at the top of Buffalo society. And they would write columns about the Burdicks, you know, anything that happened to them, or like when they would attend these events, you know, they would give these very detailed descriptions of Alice's dresses and things. And um, they, they were very wealthy. But the Pennells were a lot more wealthy. And Arthur Pennell and Ed Burdick became really good friends. Arthur Pennell was uh, an attorney, he was a local attorney, but he had this very romantic origin. You know, he was the son of a sea captain and he had gone to Yale and he was just exactly the opposite of Ed. You know, Ed was a very small, alert, active kind of guy, very generous. And Arthur was more literary and and moody, probably more brilliant, a lot more wealthy too. But Ed really liked him and he admired him so much that he actually made Arthur the guardian of his three children that um, he and Alice had. And Alice admired Arthur a lot too. Yes. And just so listeners understand, uh, these relationships, these events were happening, you know, right around 1900, 1901, 1902. Yes. Well, Alice actually had an affair with Arthur that started in 1898, but Ed didn't learn about it until I think it was New Year's Eve or New Year's Day of 1901. And um, it was it was a big shock to him. And at first he didn't believe it. He was told about the affair by Arthur's wife, Carrie. And I, I'm guessing she told him because she was hoping that he would break up the whole thing. But he didn't believe her. And then later, you know, when all their guests had left, he confronted Alice. But Alice was, she didn't deny it. And she didn't, she wouldn't really say that, no, that isn't true. And there wasn't a whole lot of outrage, like all of the emotions you would expect her to show if it wasn't true. 
And so Ed started searching around through her things and he found this box of letters, like love letters that Arthur had written to her that she had saved. And it really just blew everything up between them. And Ed left for a little while, but before he did, he gave this box of letters to Alice's mother, you know, his mother-in-law. I'm not really sure why he chose to do that, but that was what he did with these letters. And then he moved out to a hotel for, I don't know, maybe a few days at first. Yeah. um, Ed Burdick seemed to have a a good head on his shoulders, uh, emotionally stable. Yes. He didn't overreact when he, he found out that his wife had been cheating on him. He didn't, but I think that it really hurt him. I I think even though he didn't show a lot of emotion, he was a very cool, more reserved kind of person, even though he was friendly and people really liked him. He was, he kept most of his emotions to himself, I think. But the reason that we know that he was so hurt is because a lot of their letters to each other survived. And so we have those and we can look at the things that he was saying. And I think that he was very reasonable. You know, it seemed to be the um, irrationality seemed to be on the other side of that. Yeah, that that was so important having those those letters. It it really gives a, a good glimpse into their relationship. Yes. Especially during this era uh, when people didn't really outwardly express their emotions. It's so true because if you read Victorian letters or or anything that was written around that time, they're, they're very reserved even in their letters. And these letters were frank, I would say would be the word. They were very... Um, they weren't really hiding a lot or, or using a lot of veiled language or anything like that. I guess briefly what happened was that Ed figured out that Alice was still corresponding with Arthur. You know, he had moved out to a hotel, but she assured him it's over. You know, you should come back home. And he did. But he realized or started to suspect at some point that Arthur was still writing to his wife and she was probably writing to him. And he very cleverly figured out that she must have a post office box. And so he went there to the post office and poses her brother, I think, and just said, you know, my sister wants me to have a key. And I guess that's just how it worked in 1901 because they were like, oh, all right, that's fine. So they gave him a key to this post office box. And he was very, like you said, he, he did not overreact at all. He was reading these letters as they were coming in, often before Alice did. He would read them and he had his own publishing company. So he would copy them and then he would seal them back up. So he would steam them open and seal them back up. So he knew all this time what was going on. And sometimes he would ask her questions and she would say, oh, no, all that's in the past, you know, but he knew she was lying. And eventually in May of that year, he asked her to leave and she went to Atlantic City. And the letters that we were talking about were the ones that passed between them while she was there. And that was I guess, through May and June of 1901. Yeah. One of the odd things about all of this, while Alice was basically kicked out of the house, told to leave, her mother (laughs) (laughs) uh, wasn't. She was allowed to stay in the home. What do you think about 
Ed's relationship to his mother-in-law? I mean, it had to be very awkward is the first thing that I would think. But she always said that she stayed because of the three girls. So when Alice left, she didn't take the girls with her. I think they were they were wealthy enough where they didn't really have a lot of responsibilities that they personally had to take care of with the girls. Like they had servants to cook for them and, you know, made sure that they would go to school and everything. And so that mother type role, I think was fulfilled at least as much by Mrs. Hull as it was by Alice. And when Alice left, I don't, I don't know how badly she felt about leaving her girls behind, but um, her mother stayed for them. And I think initially, at least, Ed felt like Mrs. Hull was even more on his side, you know, than than on Alice's side, because Mrs. Hull was aware of why she left. And um, it just, it was very, it was a very ugly time between them while she was in Atlantic City. And Ed was, that was the first time that Ed started to threaten to divorce her, was while uh, she was away that time. I think. Naturally, a man, if he's cheated on by his girlfriend or his wife, would would have some anger towards the other man, right? Um, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But Ed had a pretty unique relationship with Pennell, right? He did. I mean, it was weird because they were friends originally. They they had golfed together. They spent a lot of time together. And the two couples would go on vacation together. I mean, it wasn't even like a casual friendship. It's They were very good friends. But when Ed was threatening to divorce her, Alice could be very manipulative with her writing. And she would she would kind of taunt Ed on the one hand with, you know, like Arthur would love to come and see me and, and all he needs is just for me to say, yes, come here and and he'll be here any moment. But I'm still waiting. I still want to work things out with you. And so the way that Ed was trying to, to move forward was he said that if Arthur would leave Buffalo, then Alice could come home. But he, he didn't really believe that Arthur would leave. And um, he said, you know, he says he'll do anything for you. So he should leave town for you if that's what you want. But Alice suddenly took this very hands-off role. She was like, well, I can't force him to go. And eventually Ed agreed to let her come home anyway, under the condition, of course, that she break off her affair with Pennell. So in, in the meantime... Ed kind of cunningly uh, continues to build a case against his wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was very smart like that. He um, he never trusted her. After he found out about the affair, I don't think he ever trusted her, which was why he figured out about the post office box and everything. But he never told her that he had figured that out. And maybe she could have deduced that, but she didn't, you know, about how he found out that this affair was still going on. She just knew that he had found out about it somehow. So when she came back, they continued to use this post office box to communicate with each other. She and Arthur did. And so Ed was perfectly aware that she had right away just continued to have this affair with Arthur. And by then it was a it was a long time. So it started in 1898. And so by the by the end of 1901, early 1902, 
you know, Ed was threatening to divorce Alice again. So this is the, the second time that he was threatening to do that. How much information is Ed able to gather by hiring detectives? A lot. A lot more than you would think. So they trailed Alice and Arthur all around Buffalo for a long time, for several months, without him saying anything. And then he was also still checking these, these um, you know, letters that are coming in. And he eventually found out, I believe through one of the letters, about a date and a time that they were going to meet at this apartment that Pennell had rented, and he had it furnished and everything. So Alice was going to go there to meet him. And it was the first time they had a couple days preview, and they actually knew where they were going to meet. See, Arthur was very cautious, even though he thought that Ed would never see these letters. He still would write in code a little bit. And he would say, you know, I'll meet you at one, two, three. And so they wouldn't know where one, two, three was. Maybe they would figure it out after the detectives followed him on the spot. But this time he knew where they were going to meet and he knew what time and everything and the address. And so Ed went there with the detectives and he was thinking that he would be there and just confront Alice on the spot. And, you know, I know you're here and maybe he would get his divorce then. You know, Alice definitely did not want a divorce. I think she was afraid that Ed would divorce her and then Arthur would not leave his wife. And so then she would be kind of stuck alone, which was the last thing that she wanted. And so he went there to, you know, to catch her basically in the act. And when they got there, you know, there was a lot of scuffling on the inside and everything. And then finally Arthur opened the door and he said, you know, Alice isn't here. But Ed knew that she had been, and she had basically found this, I don't know, I guess it was like a balcony or something, and she climbed down the balcony, and she went to church for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> and um, th- she, when she came home that day, he confronted her, and he said, Allie, where were you earlier today? And she was like, I was at church. And he was like, you weren't. I know where you were. And that was the second time that he told her, you have to leave. And this time, I think he meant it. It was for real. And he wasn't going to allow her to come back. And so he let her stay there for the night to get her things together. But then in the morning, he expected her to leave. And she did. She went to Niagara Falls with Arthur for a couple of days. And then she went to New York City. And then she went back to Atlantic City. Ed had found some peace in all of this. Once he'd made the decision to pursue a divorce, he seemed uh, happier to people around him. I think he was. He really wanted things to work with Alice. And I think he he tried, but he had tried everything. He had been very patient and very understanding and forgiving. And she was just going to keep taking advantage of his nature. And once he realized that and stopped trying to make it work with Alice. I think it really appealed to him that he could be happy with somebody else or at least happier, like knowing what was going on in his own home um, without having to worry that, you know, his wife was out running around on him. And so they were to be divorced on March 5th of 1903. And Alice got very frantic in the days leading up to that date. And she met with Ed and tried to persuade you know, persuade him to take her back. 
And Carrie Pennell had written to Ed several times and, and pleaded with him, please don't divorce Alice. And Arthur came to his office. And once I believe it was pretty amicable, but once he was very upset, he really lost his temper and he threatened to kill Ed if Ed didn't take Alice back. And he said, you know, I'll kill, I'll kill you. I'll kill Alice. I'll kill myself. You know, he's just like throwing out all these random threats. And Ed was just by that time, I think Ed was so done with it, you know, like it happened too many times and he didn't believe anything that Alice or Arthur was going to say to him anymore. And Alice had also filed a countersuit alleging that Ed was the person who had been cheating on her. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and they had hired detectives to follow him too, right? Um, but, but they didn't find as much as he had. There was a lot less to find out. I do think that Ed was like interested in other women, but I don't think that he would have ever acted on it while he was married to Alice, except for that he knew by then that they were getting divorced. One woman in particular that he really liked a lot was named Helen Warren, and she got divorced from her husband, I want to say in the middle of February. So like say February 10, 15, somewhere around there. And Ed was carrying this um, clipping from a, a newspaper that just, you know, announced the divorce in his wallet. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And he would occasionally meet other women as well, right? Purely socially, maybe take them to a candy shop, uh, buy them some <laughs> yeah. soda. Her name is uh, Gertrude Payne, and she's just she's one of these characters where I could just see her so clearly when I was writing about her. Just her her language alone, and like the quotes that we have from her, and she's just one of those women who knew everything that was happening in her social circle, and she had a lot of catty little comments that she would throw around. But she also really liked to be in the know, and personal opinion is that Ed wasn't really interested in her, but he knew that she was a great source of information. So he would ask her things like, do you know if the Pennells are going to go to this dance at this club that we both belong to? Because if the Pennells were going to go, then Ed didn't want to go. That kind of thing. She, she was struggling a bit herself, right? She, she was trying to maintain her social standing while secretly suffering from a difficult financial situation. Yes. And she cared a lot more about social status even than other people like within that social uh, hierarchy where she was in it. But um, she wanted to do things like buy these great new clothes. And she always wanted to be like on the cutting edge of fashion. And so she would um, borrow money from Ed. I don't think her husband was aware of it. And so she would also take in borders and try to do all these other things to, to earn money. But at the same time, I think she was borrowing pretty substantially from Ed with no real way to pay him back. But in my opinion, Ed was just a generous guy and probably would have never asked her to. So meanwhile, Ed's main confidant, and they weren't even that close, uh, was his business partner, the only person who had some understanding about what was going on in his personal life, really. Yes. I think it was one of those things where his business partner, they weren't really great friends, but his business partner just happened. I mean, they were in the same office, and sometimes things would happen at the office. So Arthur came to see Ed 
a few times at their office. And Carrie had written to him, Carrie Pennell had written to him a few times at the office. Alice came to see him at the office. So he would pick up things here and there. And he had his opinions about everybody. But I don't think that he was, you know, involved with with them as a social group at all. And he just understood a few things about Ed and he he knew about the divorce. One thing that Ed did tell him about though, was Ed told him that he was afraid for his life. And he said that um, he was very frightened and he had bought a revolver and he carried the revolver everywhere with him. I think he bought it in December. It was like maybe a week or two after Alice had left and gone to Atlantic city. He bought this revolver and he was never seen without it after he got it. And so um, his business partner did ask him once about Pennell. And he said, no, I think Pennell's a coward. I don't think he could or would hurt me. So whoever Ed was fearful of was not Pennell, according to Ed and his business partner. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pennell was the one acting the most desperate at the end, right? And something I, I wanted to ask you about and you answer this question yourself in your book, Um, one of the strange things about all of this, Mrs. Pennell was the one who told Ed that Alice was cheating on him. Yeah. Yet she is extremely dead set against the divorce. (laughs) Um, How do you explain that? Absolutely. I think she just miscalculated it. (laughs) I think she thought that he was going to say, like, he was going to... I don't know, like prevent Alice from ever going outside again. And it would be like between Ed and Alice and she probably wouldn't have to confront Arthur. But Arthur had a, a an unusual personality. I think Arthur was very sensitive to scandal and his wife was was very uh, protective of him in that way. She didn't want people to talk about him. And I think part of it, that was part of the reason why she went to Ed and hoping that Ed could just somehow fix it on his end. But I don't think she even, I don't think even entered her head that he might divorce Alice. And then she would be contending with that. Honor was a a huge underlying uh, piece of the book. You know, I think people had their honor and and part of the honor had to do with the things that were okay socially. Divorce wasn't really acceptable socially. And so it put Mrs. Pennell in a weird spot. You know, she didn't want to be a divorcee herself and she didn't want her husband to leave her. So if Alice, though, if Ed divorced Alice, Alice didn't really have any money of her own. And so would he have felt more honor bound to leave his wife and go off with Alice. Maybe. I think that's what she was fearful of and why she wanted Ed and, and Alice to stay together. But it totally backfired on her. I don't think she had all thought that they might get divorced over it. When we come back to my interview with Kimberly Tilly, the mysterious circumstances surrounding the untimely death of Edward Burdick. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we're back to the interview. So can you walk us through the, the final night of Ed Burdick's life? Uh, what do we know? Yeah. What did he do prior to his death? Uh, how did things end for him? Yeah, it was. it's a very mysterious murder. What happened was it was on a Thursday. Ed went to work. He came home around his usual time. He stopped to see a friend on his way back home. The only unusual thing was that he knew he was getting divorced in less than a week. So I think it was like five days until their divorce. And he was feeling better about things, a lot better about them. And he bought a bottle of liquor on his way home. But Ed was a, I think I mentioned he was a small guy and he was delicate. He had like delicate health and he couldn't really drink very much. And so the, the bottle of alcohol wouldn't have been for him. It would have been for a guest of some kind because they, they drink socially at their house, but he would never just have a drink at night or anything like that. So he bought this bottle. He brought it home. 
people saw it at dinner, you know, and he just had dinner with his girls and um, Mrs. Hull was there and the servants also saw it. And then, you know, he played with the children a little bit and then they went to bed and Ed went, he went to his room. I think he changed clothes, you know, put on his, his lounging around clothes. And then he went back downstairs to his den and his den was like his spot. It was his special place. That it was like his man room, I guess, at the time. And he would smoke in there and read, but he wouldn't, he didn't really eat in there. Um, people didn't really drink in there. They had a really large house. And so there were different rooms that they, you know, had for, for different activities. So the only things he would do in there really were smoke and read. And so he went back down to downstairs, you know, to the first floor and he was, I guess, having his smoke and, and reading. And the only reason that we know very much about it at all is because the cook was out for the night and she didn't go out at night very often. And she came home and there was a rule that they had to be in by 1030. And so she looked at the clock when she came in and it was 1018. She was, you know, and when she walked out of the kitchen, you know, she came in the back door, she walked out of the kitchen and into the hallway. Ed sort of like jumped out of his den. He was, he seemed like he was, he heard something and maybe forgot she was out or, or whatever the case was, but he saw her and he very quickly went back into his den and shut the door part way because he was where he was only wearing his underwear. And so the cook was thinking, well, he's just, you know, embarrassed. He didn't want me to see him like that. And she went up to her room. And um, the last anybody heard or saw of him was she heard somebody filling up the furnace around, I don't know, 1030 or 11 that night. And that's what he generally did in the evening. And just thinking about why he might have been in his underwear. One reason might be because it was a coal furnace and coal is dirty, you know, and if you, if you're shoveling coal or anything, if you get it on you, it really, it'll mess up your clothes for sure. So he, maybe that's why, I don't know. That was just my guess on it. Yeah. And and interestingly, he didn't shut the door all the way. No. And because he didn't, the cook was fairly sure there was nobody with him. She didn't think there was. And, she worked there for a while and she just knew how he was and how he generally treated visitors. They didn't usually have visitors during the week and she didn't hear any voices. She just thought he was in there by himself, which he seems to have been, but that was the last anybody heard of him. And so if you count, even when she heard him in the, in the cellar, that would have been like maybe 10 30 or 11. And the next morning, she was the first person downstairs. So let's say it's like 7 a.m. or so. So she dressed and and was walking downstairs. And when she got to the first floor, she realized it was very cold in the house, like extremely cold. And so this is Buffalo in February, which is a, it's a cold place, right? And um, she realized that the reason it was so cold was because the front door was just standing open. And she thought that was very odd. You know, that had never happened the whole time that she worked there, but she shut the door and then she went into the kitchen. She was the cook. She was going to get breakfast on, I guess. And um, she noticed that the window in the kitchen was also standing open. And her first thought was that it must be thieves. So she runs upstairs to notify Mr. Burdick and she's knocking on the door and he's not answering. And so she opens the door and she realizes 
um, I think the gaslight was still burning in his room and he hadn't slept in his bed and she just got a very strange feeling about it. But she remembered that she saw him the night before and thought, well, maybe he fell asleep while he was reading in his den. So she rushes back downstairs and the den door is now closed all the way and latched. Like she didn't go in. She felt afraid for some reason. And she went back upstairs and knocked on Mrs. Hull's door. And Mrs. Hull, she said, you know, Ed isn't in his room. Mr. Burdick isn't in his room. And and I think we've had thieves here. Um, what should we do? And so Mrs. Hull said, you know, I'll look for him. You go start breakfast. You know, she was very, Mrs. Hull was very concerned about being proper and making sure that things didn't, there were no aberrations in, in their routine or anything. And so while Maggie went downstairs to, you know, begin her breakfast, Mrs. Hull went down to the den and she was afraid too. And Maggie joined her there and she said, will you open the door and go in? And Maggie was like, no, not me. I'm not going to do it. And Mrs. Hull didn't want to do it either. But she she yelled through the door for Ed, I think, three times. And when he didn't answer, she said, all right, Maggie, go finish cooking breakfast. And when you're done, go to the drugstore and phone the doctor from there and say that we need him to come here, which is a little bit funny because the verdicts had a phone. Yeah, yeah, really odd. <laughs> yeah, and she also didn't really know what was wrong with Ed. All she knew was that he didn't answer her, but she was convinced there was something wrong with him. And she said she didn't want the children to hear the maid call the doctor. And so um, that's exactly what happened. You know, Maggie finished cooking. She went to the drugstore, which wasn't too far away, and she called the doctor, Dr. Marcy, and said, you know, we, Mr. Burdick is sick. Can you come over? And so the doctor came over. And in the meantime, the house was super cold because the heat had gone way down, you know, and with the coal furnaces, you have to replenish them. And, and it burned up a lot faster than usual because the door and the window were open. And so the other servant, her name was Katie. She saw the the local guy who fixes the furnace and she asked him to come over and fix the furnace. And he said, okay, I'll come a little bit later. You know, I'm, I'm on a job right now. And when he came over, he was shocked at how far the fire had burned down. And nobody really knew what that meant. You know, like, were the doors open all night? Is that why it had gone down like that or or what? But um, they knew it had been working the day before and then it was, was unusually low the next day. Um, so those two things were kind of happening simultaneously, you know, with the doctor coming over and with the guy trying to fix the furnace. How, how long did it take before the police were summoned? It took a while. When the doctor came in, he um, nobody had been in the den yet, which was kind of funny that they actually went to the trouble of calling the doctor, but nobody had even seen Ed. But he went in the den and it was dark and he didn't know where all the lights were and everything. So he stumbled over to the window and I think he, they had Venetian blinds and just the way that he pulled them, they ended up falling down. The Venetian blinds fell down. And so when he turned around, it was this horrible specter for him because he saw Ed's body on the couch, what he assumed was Ed's body. It was covered with pillows and stuff and his head had been wrapped up in a blanket 
but it was a very bloody crime scene. And so he could tell that the man on the sofa was dead and he was only wearing an undershirt. And um, I don't think he looked around too much. He just identified that he was dead. He checked his pulse, you know, even though there really wasn't, it was obvious, but he checked his pulse. And then he went outside and Mrs. Hull was standing outside the outside the den in the hallway. And he told her, you know, Mr. Burdick's been murdered. And she said, all right, well, let me tell the children. And so she went in the dining room and told the children who were still eating their breakfast. And then um, in the meantime, Dr. Marcy called the coroner, because I guess that was the process then. You had to have the coroner come over and certify somebody. And when he came over, the coroner's name was Dr. Howland. And Dr. Marcy talked to Dr. Howland before he went inside the room. And he said, hey, if you can could you just list this as a suicide? And Dr. Holland was like, I mean, maybe <laughs> like if it, it depends on if it was a suicide. And so he went into the room and he was like, is this how you found the body? Like with the head wrapped up like this and, and everything. And Dr. Marcy was like, yeah. And he's like, then no, I, and then he, but the more he looked, he was like, no, I can't possibly, there's no way this is a suicide. And it's funny because the question of suicide came up over and over. Like when people heard Ed was dead, they were like, did he kill himself? And so maybe he was a little bit suicidal, but in this case, like there was, you could tell even somebody who doesn't know anything about police procedure or forensics or anything, you could tell certainly that he had been murdered. And um, so because the coroner wouldn't, wouldn't go along with the story that he committed suicide, they had to call the police. Otherwise they would have just called the undertaker and he would have been buried and that would have been it. Like nobody would have ever known anything about the murder. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the second doctor was able to examine the wound and better assess what had happened. Um, he pretty quickly concluded that Ed had been bludgeoned in the head multiple times with an unknown weapon. Yeah. He had been beaten to death with something and the the doctor didn't know what it was. And there wasn't nothing appeared in the in the immediate area where he was like, that must be the murder weapon. You know, there wasn't any kind of bloody anything laying around. And so he thought maybe a fire poker or something, but he wasn't sure. He just said, you know, all I can tell you is that he was beaten to death and he probably died around 2 a.m. So that gives a long window you know, from the time that Maggie saw him when she came in until the time that somebody came back downstairs. So she came down at seven. So it was like four hours after somebody last saw him and then five hours before anybody came down and saw what had happened. Um, so there was that long window where a lot of things could have happened in the house and no one was really sure what the story was. You know, what, the crime scene was very puzzling when the police got there, the first thing that they noticed was that it looked like a robbery at first because it looked like somebody crawled in the kitchen window and then maybe came upon Ed without thinking that they were going to killed him and then ran out the front door. But there was also this other thing going on where there was this tray of food. Um, there was a bottle of liquor, not the same bottle that he had bought earlier that day, but it was a different bottle of liquor and, and somebody had been drinking out of a glass there and there were some cheese and tarts and things like that that were on this plate. And 
everyone in the house was confident that it wasn't Ed though, because Ed couldn't, apparently he couldn't have that kind of food. Like it, it was, didn't agree with him very much and he didn't drink and they were sure it wasn't Ed. And so it was like, well, then did he have a, he had somebody over then. And plus there was the whole matter of him only having on his undershirt. It kind of looked like maybe he had had a date or something, but then why is the, why is the kitchen window open? So there were these two things that you could draw from the scene, you know, and they told different stories and they were completely conflicting, you know, probably there's no way that both of them could be true. Like it would be very unlikely that he would have a guest who killed him. And then, you know, maybe a a random robbery the same day. So it just kind of depended on what you thought was more likely, you know, and basically the police thought that the whole scene had been staged like 100%. And it was just staged in a very confusing way. Like maybe the person who was doing it was flustered. And so they were trying to like make a few things look like, you know, just try to throw police off. So maybe they tried a couple different things at once, you know, a little bit of robbery, a little bit of murderous visitor. And, you know, the police had to just hash out what was true and what wasn't. No no stranger, though, would kill someone and then take the time to carefully wrap up the head. That suggests something a little more intimate. You would think so. And and now, you know, if you watch any kind of true crime TV, they'll tell you that if somebody covers the face of the victim, it's usually a sign that they knew them because it bothers them to, to see the face that they knew and, and that they've killed this person. Right. And so they thought because of that first, that, that it had been somebody who knew him, but also just because there was no evidence that there was a robbery at all. And there was all kinds of valuable stuff laying around. They were quite wealthy. And so he had a lot of valuable things in his den. His wallet was sitting there. Um, tragically, his gun was there. So he even took his gun to his den to read at night. I mean, he was a really, he seemed to be a man who was genuinely afraid of something. But what? And if he had a murderous guest, you know, who did he let in in the middle of the night? Was it somebody that he had, you know, planned to meet? Was it somebody who just showed up? And then who would he trust enough to let them into his house in the middle of the night and then turn his back on the person? Because that was the other thing that the coroner could say was that the first time that Ed had been struck, he had been struck like 20 times with whatever this object was. But the first time that he had been struck had been from the back. And so he was looking the other way and didn't see it coming. And the body was moved a little bit, maybe like a few feet after that, but um, not out of the out of the den. So what they knew about the crime scene and what they knew about Ed being so afraid, which came out pretty quickly that he was afraid really pointed to, well, it's, it, you know, obviously the, the obvious suspect would be Arthur, right? Like, cause he was having this affair with Alice, but then the police were pretty clever about things too. And they started to think, well, like Arthur didn't want Ed to even get a divorce from Alice. You know, it doesn't really seem like it would be in his interest to murder the guy. And um, there were a few things that just seemed to point away from Arthur. Plus, they couldn't find the murder weapon. And their initial theory was that they thought it was a woman almost right away. Uh, The doctor disagreed, but the police were pretty sure it was a woman who came over 
And she came over for the purpose of murdering Ed, but she had a, a date with him of some kind. And she had this object that she had hidden under her coat or something. And she killed him. And then she fled and took this weapon with her. And that's why they couldn't find it at the scene. That was the theory that they were operating with at first. So the police begin their investigation. And part of what they do is, of course, they question as many people as they can, including Mrs. Hall, right? Mm-hmm. Right away. But but she is not especially cooperative. She isn't. And one of the strangest things, I think probably the strangest thing that I've never been able to explain to myself even has been the role that their family physician, Dr. Marcy, played in it. Because I don't think there was any question that he was involved in Ed's death, but he was the first person that the family called. And he showed up and I think he had only seen Ed a few weeks ago. Like he had just seen Ed somewhat recently and he knew he was in good health. So he was surprised that he was sick. And then he came in and he found this scene. But after that, you know, from the time that the police were called, Dr. Marcy just very persistently interfered with any kind of questioning that they wanted to do with the family. Anytime they tried to ask Mrs. Hall anything, he would step in and say, Mrs. Hall, is she's a senior. She's got a very weak heart. I'm treating her for that. She can't answer questions. It's too distressing. And the children by then were, let's see, the oldest was 15. Her name was Marion. And then there was one who was 12, I think, and then 10. And the 10-year-old was named Alice. So Alice was the littlest girl, Carol and Marion. And the doctor didn't want the girls to be questioned either. And maybe for like the younger girls, you could understand it. But Marion was 15 and and you think might have heard something that would help the police catch the murderer, you know, or I'm sure they wouldn't have been very harsh with with any of the children anyway. So it seemed odd that Dr. Marcy just continued to interfere. And by the time the police had finished with the scene, which was pretty quick because they didn't have forensics or anything like that, by the time they were ready to go, the last thing they wanted to do was question the family. And Dr. Marcy just, he took the stand and he, he would not let them talk with the family. And it was really his only... I would say it's like the big role that he played in the whole case was just that day and preventing them from talking to potential witnesses. You know, I I guess he was okay with them talking to the cook and to the maid that the verdicts had, but not to anybody in the family. And when Ed's business partner came over, because Mrs. Hull asked the doctor to, to notify Ed's business partner. So he came over to the house during this investigation and Dr. Marcy had a word with him. And he said, you know, you're the guardian of the children. After after Ed found out about the affair, his the guardian became um, his business partner. He said, you're the guardian of the children. And um, they're at a very vulnerable point, And you need to stand with me. And so when Dr. Marcy refused to allow the police to come in and talk to the family because of health reasons, the business partner then backed him up and said, yeah, I, I want them to have an attorney present. And the police were completely baffled because they were thinking, you know, the family isn't under suspicion. We're trying to find out what happened, though, and get all, all of the leads while we still can. You know, time was of the essence. And Dr. Marcy really thwarted them in a lot of ways. I didn't get the, the feeling in reading your book that Mrs. Hull was particularly 
vulnerable. <laughs> I don't think she was either. She was um, she was 64, 65, somewhere around there. And she she did have the doctor that, you know, would treat her and everything, but she was not a frail looking woman. You know, there's a there's a photograph of her in the book. And um, just from her actions and what we know of her, there was nothing about her that seemed weak. I mean, she might have been the strongest person physically and uh, mentally that lived in the house at the time. Alice and Ed were both, you know, petite. So was Mrs. Hall. But um, she just seemed like a, an enigmatic, mysterious kind of person. Very tough, though. Definitely wouldn't think that she would need um, somebody to, to sail to her rescue to save her from a question or two. So Mrs. Hull quickly notifies her daughter Alice, now a widow, yeah. of what had happened. How does that communication happen and, and how does Alice react? So her mother sent her a telegram. And Alice wrote back right away and said, all right, I'll be on the three o'clock train out of here. But if you think about what a strange place Alice must have been in, you know, she was thinking she was going to be a divorcee. And then all of a sudden she's a widow instead. And she was going to be divorced from Ed in, in less than a week. And so I'm not sure what kind of mental preparation she had done for that, but her mother told her very unceremoniously that, that Ed had died and it was just a one-line telegram that the police later got a hold of and found it to be odd. And then Alice came home on the train and she was just very carefree. You know, there were some reporters at the station and she looked around. I think she thought Arthur would probably pick her up at the station because she did, you know, um, send him a telegram, but he wasn't there. And she just, uh, got a cab home. But before she did, she talked to a few of the reporters that were there looking for her and just seemed very, I guess, relaxed, carefree. I, I don't know exactly what word I would use to describe her, but she did not seem upset. And more like impersonal interest, maybe it would be a good word for it. You know, she was curious about like, oh, do you know what room it happened in? Oh my gosh, really in the den? You know, so it didn't, it did not seem like the way that you would react if your spouse was brutally murdered. And so she got a cab home and her mother and daughters came out to greet her and hugged her. And she just, you know, she went inside and she, from the time that she got back to her house that day, I don't think she ever planned to leave the house again, which was from her point of view, a great thing. She didn't want to leave the house. She was going to have to, she had been living in like a hotel room. And now she got to come back home. She had her servants. She had her children. She had everything that she wanted, her own possessions. And and it was sort of like she had all the benefits of being married to Ed, but she didn't have to deal with Ed anymore, was the impression that she gave off to people. But when people would stop by to see her that day and the following day, she wasn't at home to visitors, so she wouldn't see anybody. And it might not have appeared as indecent um, as it would have if she had been kind of carefree with their friends. Um, this was all, you know, through the reporters and, and their quotes from their conversations with her. Right. So obviously she couldn't have physically committed the murder. Uh, nowhere near the scene of the crime. The natural suspicion would point towards Arthur Pennell 
And he actually was the suspect that the business partner believed had been a part of this, at least. He was sure that it was Arthur Puddle, or that's what he told the police anyway. Um, he had been there the day that Arthur said that if Ed didn't take Alice back, that he would he would kill himself and he would kill Alice and, and Ed. And so there was an actual threat that Arthur had made on Ed's life in front of somebody else, which is a big deal. And the police took it seriously, but it didn't add up to them. You know, especially the more that they learned about Arthur, he was maybe poetic, withdrawn, a sensitive person, and it just didn't add up. But he did have the motive, in a sense, right? And he was afraid that Ed, in the course of their divorce hearings, Ed was going to show all of his letters to people and it was going to be really embarrassing. And he cared a lot about his social status. So, that was something to be avoided. And that would have been a good motive. Certainly had the means, you know, he could have gotten a key to the house from Alice. Um, He was a very good friend of the family for a long time before their affair. And so he knew the inside of the house and could have gotten in, you know, during the day, even before Ed came home and just hidden out there, or he could have gotten in somehow, either broken in or used a key to get in um, later in the evening and maybe confronted Ed in the den. You know, those were all theories that they were working on, but it didn't add up with the crime scene and also just what they, what they knew of Arthur in general. It just didn't seem to fit, even though it would have all the classic elements of, of a killer. Nonetheless, uh, the fact that his name was now in the papers, as well as his wife's, it was definitely uh, eating him up inside. Yeah. I mean, this is what he wanted to avoid, right? That's why he wanted to talk Ed out of the divorce to begin with. Um, Arthur didn't want publicity. And of course, he didn't want his reputation besmirched. That's right. Yeah, he was he was very sensitive. There's a letter that that we have that he wrote um, that's in the book that he just wrote to a friend of his in Pennsylvania, and he just it's it's just sort of a proactive defense. Like you might have seen my name in the paper, but here's what really happened. And he had the story, which wasn't true, but it was something to the effect of like you know he had found out that Ed was cheating on. Alice and Alice was outraged and he and his wife had taken Alice aside. So Ed had invented all these stories about him. And and clearly it wasn't true, but he was very protective about his reputation and he was very embarrassed and he started to, I mean, it, it could be true or it could have been his imagination, but he, he at least thought that people were looking at him differently and suspecting him of this, this terrible murder and he would even talk to his barber and his barber um, talked about it later, but he would just say, you know, you know, I didn't do it. You know, I would not have killed Ed, even though we didn't get along, you know, I would have never killed him. And so it seemed like he was always pleading his case a little bit. And he really let his work go around the same time because he couldn't concentrate on it. Do you think he was suicidal? He could have been. Actually, I do think he probably was because in his letters to Alice that have survived, he started to just use these, these phrases and things that made him sound like he was suicidal. He really felt 
he said that he loved Alice a lot more than Alice loved him, which was undeniably true. You know, she was, she definitely didn't love him the way that he loved her, nor did she love Ed. I, I don't think she loved either of them that much, but um, he said he, he was really despairing about it, I think, because he didn't feel like divorce was an option for him. And he was just sort of trapped in this marriage that he wished he could get out of, but now he was in it. And at the same time, he didn't really believe that Alice really loved him. And, you know, maybe if one of those factors would have been different, then he would have been, you know, he would have behaved differently. But as it was, he started to withdraw. He um, gave a really unwise interview to a reporter that was trying to, I think the reason Arthur's name was in the papers was not so much because people thought Arthur did it. It was because of the scandal, you know, and it was a, it was a really big deal in Victorian type morality and society for there to be an affair like that, especially between these highly visible people. And so that was the reason that people were fascinated with Arthur. It really didn't, I don't think that people really believe that Arthur killed Ed, but in the end, he started to withdraw from people as though they were. And he had this book that he would read a lot. Um, and in the book, I don't know if I mentioned this in, in Cold Heart or not, but he, he would read this book. And in the book, the main character committed suicide. And he would write these despairing letters. There was a lot of evidence, I think, to suggest that, yeah, he might have been suicidal. So I know we are running behind a little... <laughs> So we don't have to get into too much detail about this, and we can leave this uh, for readers. But Arthur and his wife basically are in an unfortunate automobile accident, and they are taken out of the story. Yes. And no longer really a, a part of the investigation. Yes. And interestingly, though, I think the police had already ruled them out. So... It, if if it was intentional, it really it never had to be like they. I don't think they would have seen any more, been any more bothered by the police. At least you know the public would have stayed fascinated with them. But um, but you're right. Like it would. They kind of had this unfortunate end that they met. And um, when Alice found out, she really was sort of blasé about it. I guess she didn't seem like she cared that much. Yeah, I found that incredibly surprising. The, the, the love that was professed in those letters w w was cloying, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, almost sickening. Yeah. I mean, I know the language was, was a little bit more uh, flowery back then. But when Alice was confronted with the sad news about Arthur, she barely batted an eye. That's absolutely true. Except one thing is that we don't have the letters that Alice wrote to Arthur. All we have are Arthur's letters. And True. from what we can deduce from them, he was the person who was saying, you know, I don't think you love me like I love you. And um, I think that there was something missing in her letters that he expected to see. And so I'm not sure how much she, how much love she professed to him. But later um, at the inquest, she certainly said that she loved him. When we come back, who do the police suspect is the real killer? And is anyone brought to justice for this brutal murder? The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906. 
when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we are back again. So I would love to ask you about the inquest. How soon after the murder did the inquest begin? And what did authorities expect to gain from this inquest? Well, um, I want to say it was held about two weeks after Ed died. And at the time, the purpose of the inquest was really just to establish, you know, whether somebody met a natural death. And if not, you know, was was there somebody that they should prosecute? So it's really about like, fact finding more than like putting somebody on the stand and um and proving their guilt right it's just about gathering information but um the inquest they they had a lot of the the people who were the principals in in the story um you know they had dr marcy there who couldn't provide any good information about why he had acted the way that he did um they had Alfred, the guy who worked on the furnace on the morning that Ed's body was discovered, they did have him there. And he had a really interesting testimony that he heard a man's voice talking in the cellar. And he wasn't sure who it belonged to, but it seemed like it must have belonged to Dr. Marcy because he was really the only man who was there at the time that Alfred was there. And so just given his behavior, it seemed very odd that this this man, and he was elderly, he was a bit hard of hearing. And so he just, I don't think he even knew anybody else was in the cellar at first. And then um, he dropped a tool or something and he heard a man's voice say, what's that? And it was probably Dr. Marcy who was in the cellar, but why? No one really knows. Um, he was talking with somebody down there though. And um, the other people that testified were, let's see, their their friend, Mrs. Payne, that um, had borrowed money from Ed. And um, she was she was such a social sensation. A lot of people actually showed up and there was it was just kind of a, a circus type atmosphere the day that she testified because everybody wanted to see what she would wear and how she would act and all of these things. Um Let's see, Alice testified, Mrs. Hull testified, the three daughters testified, and um, Ed's business partner, I think all of them testified um, about, you know, what what they knew of the incident. And I would say, like, the two most interesting ones would probably be Marion, the oldest daughter, and um, Mrs. Hull. And Alice, of course, I guess the three of them. But it's it's very funny. You know, they're all related. Of course, it's like daughter, mother, grandmother. And they were all very cold on the stand, you know, like showed zero emotion. And the prosecuting attorney who was, you know, leading this fact-finding mission he started to ask, like, you know, didn't you love your father? Or like, you know, did, weren't you fond of your son-in-law? Because just how cold they were being. I mean, there's such a thing as Victorian restraint, 
But then the way that they were being was just something way beyond it. It seemed like they literally just did not care at all that he was gone. And the judge remarked on it later. Uh, it, it was very strange. Um, and the, the newspapers would refer to Marion. I think they called her an iceberg. But at one point they said, what did you do after you found out that your father had been murdered? And she's like, um, I watered the plants and then I ate breakfast. So it just seemed very unnatural, cold. Yeah, it did. It was a little chilling. And Alice was also called to the stand and not helpful, uh, very evasive. She was evasive and she did a lot of obvious lying. You know, um, they would hold up Arthur's letters to her and say, do you recognize this? No, I don't remember getting that. And, you know, they would read them. Do you remember when you started your affair with Arthur? Mm, No, I don't remember that either. So she was uh, like her memory really suffered on the stand. You know, she she couldn't remember anything with any kind of clarity. But what she did remember, everything she blamed on Arthur, you know, it was just a given that it was Arthur's fault. And um, I don't know if it would be interesting if if people had like a drinking game to see how many times she said it was Arthur's fault or Arthur was responsible for it. But she was apparently just this innocent bystander uh, who had nothing to do with the affair. She just kind of got swept into it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> So, so nothing really comes of the inquest. No. Well, what ended up happening, they had these two surprise witnesses who, in my opinion, seemed very not credible at all. Um, but they were apparently somebody who worked at a hotel and somebody who worked at a bar in New York. And they swore that they had been with Arthur and Arthur had told them like he was doing all these crazy things and like raising toasts and being very loud and um, trying to get people's attention. And he told them that he was going to murder this guy. And all the story just sounded completely untrue, especially when you consider how paranoid he was and how private he was. And it just didn't seem like they were very credible people and the press didn't really believe it, but the judge said he did. So the judge just sort of took this as evidence and it was convenient, right? He didn't have to say that somebody else was responsible for it. Like maybe somebody related to Ed or he didn't have to like condemn Alice that much. He just wanted to, the judge just wanted to like say, all right, this is what it was due to. And he really blamed the whole thing on Arthur, but he didn't make a very good case for it. He was preoccupied with the affair with Alice and Arthur. And really he was, he was very offended by it. And a lot of his summation and his conclusions revolved around that. But he did remark on just like the lack of feeling that they showed for him, which was really sad because I think that Ed was like a very kind person and he had been kind to his family and forgiving to them. And you would never have guessed that from the way that they talked about him. Right. Right. So, so this becomes an unsolved murder. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. it still is now. Now, normally I I ask an author to speculate about who they think the killer is. And I am not going to ask you that today. (laughs) Instead, I'd, I'd like to ask you which suspects the police were most focused on. Yeah. And were they building a case against a specific person? I think, well, there were a few a few people. They thought perhaps, they, they were pretty sure it was a woman. Their initial thought was that it was 
um, their former friend, Mr. Warren. So the the man who had been divorced from his wife in mid-February that Ed seemed like he might be interested in the now ex-wife, um, they thought it might be him because he did accuse Ed, even after it came out that he was murdered, he said something like he got what he deserved. It just didn't sound very, um, like not the way that you talk about a murder victim. So it sounded like he was vindictive toward Ed. So that was their first, first guess. But then they started to think it was a woman and they thought maybe Mrs. Payne, they thought maybe Mrs. Pennell, you know, they thought about, could Alice have done it? Could Mrs. Hall have done it? Could Marion have done it? Um, and I do have a theory, which like, I, I won't spoil it for anybody, but I, I do have a theory about it. But I sent a, a, a reader copy, one of the advanced copies that I got to my parents. And um, when my dad read it, he came up with a completely different theory. I was like, well, that's almost as likely, you know, like, I, I think that there are just so many ways that it could have gone. But I, I have my theory. I think that the police were not believing what the conclusion of the judge was for sure. They didn't think it was Arthur. I do think that the prosecuting attorney would have prosecuted Arthur because if the judge would have convicted him, that was what he was interested in. So it wasn't really about what he thought was right or wrong. He wanted a conviction. So did Alice ultimately benefit from the death of her husband? She benefited from the death of her husband. She benefited from the death of Arthur, too. He had left her some money. Um, Ed had changed his will in December after she left. He changed his will to explicitly cut her out and to um, make sure that 100% of what he had went to his children. And Alice fought that in court for four or five years and eventually got control of the money. So, it, which is really sad because it was like the one thing that I, it seemed like it would be respected because it was legal and it was signed and all of these things, but it wasn't, she ended up getting control of the money and the house, but eventually, um, I think through her own mistakes and her own lavish spending ended up leaving that house, but years later. Um, and then she just kind of like kept moving into smaller and smaller places. And um, when when she died, which was many years later, she wasn't in very, um, very good circumstances financially. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, your book has just been recently released. Uh, Tell us about it. Uh, tell us about your website and how people can find out more about you. Absolutely. So it's on Amazon. Um, I have a great publisher, Black Rose Writing, and it's on their website as well. And um, I have a website called Old Spirituals where I write short stories or like just small things, uh, photographs. It's usually stuff from the turn of the century. It tends to be kind of crime related, um, but there are other things on there as well. And um, any place like that would be good. I'm also on Goodreads. So uh, I try to respond to people, anybody who contacts me that way, I respond to them. Um, I love hearing from people about the books. One thing that was really great uh, with my first book two people contacted me who were relatives of Jenny Boshider, um, who was the person who died in, in 
my first book, The Poison Glass. And it was just so cool to hear from them and, and to hear from her living family members. So I wasn't sure if something like that might happen again, but I really, I love hearing from people about the book and hearing their opinions and everything. So I would like to hear from people. Yeah, that makes the story really come alive, doesn't it? Yeah. And you can talk to living relatives about a story you, you spend so much time researching. I mean, um, they they were so gracious, too. So, it, I mean, it was it's just been really cool um, that they that they've been, you know, open to reading it. And they, they actually like the book, which was really like that just made my whole day. <laughs> I'll bet. Well, well, thank you so much for your time today uh, for the second time. <laughs> this has been great. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Again, my guest has been Kimberly Tilly. Her book is called Cold Heart, The Great Unsolved Mystery of Turn-of-the-Century Buffalo. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.